You're listening to an Art Gallery of Ontario podcast. AGO Talks are recorded live in the gallery and feature artists, writers, and curators exploring how art shapes and inspires us. Please visit us online at ago.net slash talks. Welcome. My name's Kelly McKinley, and I'm the Richard and Elizabeth Curry Director of Education here at the Art Gallery of Ontario. And it's a double thrill bill for me tonight. Number one... You can't hear me? Is this better? Hello, I'm Kelly and I'm the Director of Education here at the Art Gallery of Ontario. Is that better? Yeah? Yeah. (laughs) As I was saying, this is a double thrill bill for me tonight and hopefully for you. This is the first public lecture in the new Weston Family Learning Centre. As you can see, we're still finishing off the art installations, ready for our grand public opening on Nuit Blanche, so please come back and visit then. But you're our first big gang for a free public lecture, and we hope to see you back for many more. And the second thrill is to have Cory Doctorow here tonight. And we are thrilled and delighted that he has taken time out of his holiday to come and be with us and enable this free opportunity for us to share in his wisdom. And we're also grateful to his family for sharing him on holidays, because I know they're precious. So let me tell you a little bit about why he needs a holiday. Uh, uh, Cory Doctorow is a daddy, science fiction novelist, blogger, journalist, and technology activist. He is the co-editor, this is how you probably most of you will know him, of the popular web blog Boing Boing and a contributor to The Guardian, The New York Times, Publishers Weekly, Wired, and many other newspapers. He is formerly the Director of European Affairs for the Electronic Frontier Foundation, a non-profit civil liberties group that defends freedom in technology, law, policy, standards, and treaties. He is a visiting senior lecturer at Open University in the United Kingdom, a scholar in virtual residence at the University of Waterloo, and he served as the Fulbright Chair at the Annenberg Center for Public Diplomacy at the University of Southern California. His novels have been translated into dozens of languages and simultaneously released on the internet under the Creative Commons licenses that encourages their reuse and sharing, a move that increases his sales by enlisting his readers to help promote his work. He has been nominated for several, and won, several literary awards His New York Times bestseller, Little Brother, was published in 2008, a follow-up young adult novel called For the Win in 2010, and his latest short story collection, with a little help, will be available on paperback, ebook, audiobook, and limited edition hardcover. Entertainment Weekly called him the William Gibson of our generation. Forbes magazine said in 2007, 8, 9, and 10, that he was one of their web celebrities and one of the World Economic Forum's young global leaders for 2007. Corey's going to talk for about an hour. We'll have an opportunity at the end for some Q&A. Please join me in welcoming Corey Doctorow. Thank you. Thanks, Dan. So, uh, before I start a little uh, benediction, um, you are welcome with the AGO's blessing in mind to record this using any devices you have, video, audio, what have you, 
and to use those recordings uh, in any way you choose uh, without limitation in any media now known or yet to be invented throughout the universe, just, just so you know. So I spent a lot of time arguing about copyright, and there's this, this really boring, polarized debate that we get into when we argue about copyright, where you get one side that goes around saying, well, copyright is good, and the other side that goes around saying copyright is bad. And I think that this is a, a tremendously unfruitful way to approach the subject. Uh, copyright, after all, is just a set of technical rules intended to regulate the supply chain of the entertainment industry. And it makes perfect sense to have rules for big, complex industries. I mean, I often wish we had better rules for banks, for example. Um, arguing about whether or not rules themselves uh, as, a, as a notion are good or bad is just dumb. Uh, I think the substantive argument that we should be having at all times is which rules will give us the outcomes that we're hoping for. Because everyone knows that the um, argument taking away rules is always better is ridiculous. And everyone also knows that one cheap debating trick to attack people who disagree with a particular set of rules is to say, those people don't want any rules at all. They just want to get rid of rules altogether. It's like saying that someone who believes that a particular stretch of highway should be 80 kilometers an hour instead of 100 kilometers an hour or 120 kilometers an hour instead of 150 kilometers an hour, that that person wants no speed limits at all or wants every, all the traffic to stop altogether. Arguing that the speed limit needs to be changed isn't the same as arguing that there shouldn't be any speed limit. Uh, likewise, saying more rules are always better is also absurd. Uh, you might observe that adding a stop sign at every corner in your neighborhood has improved the flow of traffic and made it safer to walk. It doesn't necessarily follow that you should add another stop sign between each of those stop signs between each corner to make it twice as safe to walk. So here in the digital age, everything we do involves copies millions and billions of copies. Collectively, you people in this room have probably made more copies than all the people on Earth made in all the years from the time we started making copies right up to the time we started making copyright laws somewhere around the 1700s. So copying is something that happens in the digital age every time you click a mouse. You make hundreds of copies in the morning before breakfast in all likelihood. Um, and so the, the stakes for rules about copying have never been higher because they don't just reach to uh, a small number of people doing a fairly esoteric thing. They reach to what you do every day, all day long. So I'd like today to get beyond the copyright is good and copyright is bad debate and get into a meatier argument. Uh, what should copyright do and how do we make a copyright that does that stuff? So we'll start with something that I think most people agree with, that one thing that copyright should do is serve as an incentive to creativity. A good copyright system is working if it makes more people create more stuff. Uh, and a bad copyright system is one in which fewer things get made by fewer people. A good copyright system is one that serves creators. So 15 years ago, uh, the world's government started to try to update their copyright to suit the digital age. Um, and they wanted to modernize the system. And the first order of business was to ensure that technologies intended to stop copying got special status under the law. Uh, so the place where most of this stuff took place is a UN agency called WIPO, the World Intellectual Property Organization. I often say that this is an organization that has the same relationship to stupid copyright laws that Mordor has to evil. But to be fair to, to WIPO, it, it is by and large filled with pretty clever people who are mostly trying to do good things. But when it came to digital locks, when it came to stopping people from copying, they got, they got stuff pretty wrong. Um, the first thing they did in their first major internet treaty 
was to create special laws protecting what WIPO calls technical protection measures. They have a different word for everything at the UN because otherwise it would make it too easy to follow what they were up to. Um, everywhere else in the world they call this digital rights management except in Canada where we call it digital logs. Um, in the US, the WIPO Copyright Treaty became something called the Digital Millennium Copyright Act, which was, uh, it's abbreviated to DMCA, you've almost certainly heard of it. It was enacted into law in 1998. But the DMCA didn't just do what WIPO asked of its treaty signatories to do, which is to say, uh, let's give special protection to the law to digital locks, such that it's illegal to break a digital lock in order to violate copyright. So in other words, don't break the lock off of work and then do something bad uh, in respect of copyright with it. That's, ag that's against the law. Instead, what the American government opted to do was pass a law that said, breaking a digital lock is illegal no matter why you're doing it, even if you're doing it for purposes that would otherwise be lawful, even if you're not violating copyright when you break the digital log. What does that mean? Well, if you're a user of a creative work, and that's a funny distinction I'll get into in a minute, but if you're a user of a creative work, it means that the stuff that the law allowed in respect of that creative work, like making a backup or format shifting or time shifting or making a quotation, all that stuff was no longer allowed if you had to break a digital log to do it. Um, mo the most voracious consumers of information are the producers of information. So the group of people that this hit the most wasn't just someone sitting in their living room wanting to watch a movie or load it onto a digital device. It was the people who made stuff, because those are the people who consume stuff the most. But for creators and publishers, it wasn't this part of the law that had the worst effect. It was a much subtler and longer, uh, lo harder to detect effect, something that took a much longer time to surface. Um, and that was that it gave people who sold digital locks a greater say over the destiny of a work than the people who made the work that the digital lock was placed on. It created a new system of copyright that didn't accrue to people who invested in or people who created works but people whose, excuse me, people whose contribution to the work was slapping a lock on it. So here's how this works. So look at the iTunes store, which has become one of the primary vehicles for selling digital works in this century. Now, the iTunes store has been so successful that it's actually revitalized the audiobook industry, which was pretty flagging before. It's a kind of an expensive industry to manage, and it often involves sending around huge cases of cassettes or CDs later on. Now those things are delivered by and large digitally and by and large through the iTunes store. In fact, iTunes and its major DRM supplier, a company called Audible, control 90% of the audiobook market. Right? Good for them. They revitalize the market. They have a rule that says if you want to sell a work through their marketplace, you have to let them put a digital lock on it, a digital lock that they control the key to. Um, so uh, what that means is that if you decide as someone who makes audiobooks, either someone who makes a book that gets turned into an audiobook, as I do, or someone who pays to have the book turned into an audiobook so that they can resell it, as my audiobook publishers do, and my, my audiobooks are published by uh, Random House Audio, it's a division of Bertelsmann, the largest audiobook publisher in the world, you'd think would be someone who had a lot of negotiating leverage with the iTunes store. If you're one of those people and you go to, to, to iTunes and you say, I'd like to release this audiobook through the channel that 90% of the people who want audiobooks go to, they're going to tell you you need to put a digital lock on it. So you go off and you do that, and so you sell hundreds, thousands, millions of audiobooks over the years, and so people out there have collectively invested hundreds, thousands, millions of dollars in your audiobook, and then you get a call from someone who's about to do to iTunes what iTunes did 
to all those crappy audio delivery stores that existed before iTunes came along. They're about to completely destroy them with some service that's even better. And moreover, they're going to give you a bigger piece of the action. Instead of cutting you in for 30% royalty, they might cut you in for 50% royalty or 70% royalty. And you say, great, I'd like to go with this competitor of Apple's. The problem is that in order to go to the competitor of Apple's, you have to trust that your audience, the people who spent hundreds, thousands, millions of dollars, will abandon their entire investment in your works to follow you to the new platform. I mean, imagine if we passed a law that said every time you buy a book at Indigo, you're required to go to the brick and buy a bookshelf to shelve it on. And if you try to shelve it on anything else, uh, the government will spend an infinite number of your tax dollars to stop you from doing it. Well, you'd be kind of crazy as a company not to take them up on this offer, but I don't understand why anyone would think that this benefits publishers or authors. So if you can't grant permission to your readers to follow you, you end up being locked in to the system, or you have to imagine that your readers are going to maintain two separate parallel sets of infrastructure, two different catalogs, two different libraries, two different applications, two suites of devices, some to listen to the audiobooks from one publisher, and some to listen to the audiobooks from another. So here you've got these three important entities in the entertainment industry's supply chain. You've got the person who writes the book, the person who invested in the audio edition, and the company that it contributed no creative labor and made no investment in the book, uh, but they did pay some children and chained to a machine in China to manufacture a skinny piece of electronics, and then they added some DRM to this book that someone else made and um, that someone else invested in. So who of those people should have the whip hand in copyright? Who of those people should a well-constructed copyright system say, this person has ultimate control over the destiny of these precious creative bits. Well, it turns out not to be the creator or the investor, but the DRM company. And of course, this is even worse in other kinds of content where people might want to maintain a single library, such as episodic content or a TV series, um, where every penny that an audience spends investing in episodes one through five is a penny that they're going to be loath to abandon in order to follow you to episode six. So this doesn't become copyright as a friend of a creator. This becomes copyright the friend of a platform owner. So the funny thing is that it would be really easy to write a version of this copyright law that doesn't give the whip hand to DRM vendors, but instead reserves the lion's share of copyright protection and privilege to people who make creative works and invest in them. All you'd have to do is write a law that says it's illegal to break a digital lock to break the law. But if you're not otherwise breaking the law, have at it. Right? So uh, otherwise, what you're saying is go ahead and invest in digital lock businesses because you'll get an infinite governmental subsidy to help you entrap creators and publishers. So no company worth its salt would fail to take the government up on an offer like that. And some companies have really figured out how to do it. Um, and the iOS operating system is a, is a kind of virtuoso example of how to play this system. Uh, this is the iPhone, iPad uh, device ecosystem. Um, Apple uses this, this digital lock stuff to ensure that you can only run Apple's blessed uh, programs on, an Apple, on Apple's devices. So in other words, if you buy an iPhone or an iPad, you can only run a program from Apple's store on the device. Um, even if I write a program that's compatible with Apple's device, you have to break the DRM to run it if it's not sold to you through iTunes Store, and that's, of course, illegal. 
Um, um, the American government actually found this so odious, they granted a limited three-year exception to it for iPhones, but not iPads. Uh, but the, 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 the point still stands. Now, if Apple doesn't like my app, if I write an app and Apple doesn't like it, of course, they won't sell it. And I don't think they should have to. After all, I used to work in a bookstore here in Toronto called Baca. It's a great science fiction bookstore. And if I didn't like your book, I wouldn't sell it either. But there's a difference here, which is that if um, Apple doesn't like your book, it's illegal to open a store to sell the book from that will run on Apple's platform. Um, and likewise, if Apple sells an app that you've made to me, and then later on, I find a device that I like better than Apple's device, a device that either contains an emulator that would run your code or a device that would in some other way allow me to use that code, I'm not allowed to move your code off of it and onto my device. Again, only Apple can authorize me to follow you to some platform that gives you a better deal as a vendor in the Apple ecosystem than I'm getting. So every time someone buys into that iOS ecosystem, it increases the need for other software authors to follow them because it increases the, the strength of the platform. And every time someone buys an app from Apple, it makes it more expensive for creators and audiences to move to their competitors. The more popular Apple gets, the worse the deal gets for the creators who are involved in Apple's operating, in Apple's operating system and their ecosystem. Now that Apple has established itself as the powerhouse distribution system for creative works, they are not only asking for a 30% take of the, uh, the cost of an app that's sold, but they're also asking people who sell apps that also you can buy stuff in. So in other words, like an ebook reader that lets you buy ebooks in the ebook reader to send them 30% of all the money that's spent using the app. Because of course, the more leverage Apple has, the more leverage they'll exert. Now there's never been a time when tighter controls over distribution were good for artists. Fewer labels has always meant worse deals for musicians. Fewer studios has always meant worse deal for filmmakers and people who work in the movies. Uh, fewer publishers always means worse deals for authors. And it's no different with distribution, distribution bottlenecks like iOS uh, that the DMCA created by creating this law that gives special protection to digital logs. Now you think it's been 15 years since they got this really disastrously wrong. So you think that in 15 years, um, other governments would be lining up to get it right. After all, the mistakes are so glaringly obvious that the American government is busily patching it up with these triennial reviews, trying to find ways to, to undo the harm they've done with their stupid law. Um, making this mistake about digital copyright in 1998 is barely forgivable. After all, in 1998, it seemed like the whole world was possible. We were all gonna have VR headsets. Um, but more than a decade later, when you've got the facts in hand about what happened with the DMCA, it's inexcusably stupid to repeat its mistakes. Uh, now, there's a, a guy named uh, James Moore, who's the conservative member of parliament for Port Moody Co uh, Westwood Coquitlam, who uh, in the last parliament wrote a bill called C32 with Tony Clement. Uh, it was Canada's version of the, of the DMCA, and it made exactly the same mistakes that the DMCA made. Uh, it had some other stuff in it, some of it was good, some of it was bad, but in this case, it had one thing that was just egregiously stupid. Now, C32 died on the order paper after being one of the most uh, complex and controversial pieces of recent Canadian legislation, certainly one of the most spirited debates Canada's had over its information policy. Um, and James Moore has just announced that he's going to reintroduce C32 with one important difference from the way that it was introduced in the last parliament. He's not going to have any kind of public consultation on it. Now, 
the worst part of the last round of consultations on C32 was how many creators and studios, labels and publishers endorsed this weird proposal to give the meatiest part of Canada's copyright privilege over to companies that made DRM, not companies that created works. Uh, this was just suicide by law. It's, um, it, it's not as though DRM stops copying after all. Um, after all, every time they update the DRM in iOS, the, the Apple operating system, it gets broken usually within 24 hours, usually by a bored teenager somewhere in Scandinavia. Um, and you, know, you have people who think that you can make DRM on electronic books that will stop people from copying electronic books. It's like these people have never heard of retyping stuff. It's like these people believe that somehow in the 21st century when we have more skilled 70 word per minute typists than ever, that somehow typing stuff in has become a transcendently hard problem that can be solved with a digital, block, with a digital lock. Now, why doesn't DRM work? Um, it, DRM doesn't work for an important and subtle technical reason that's often lost. People usually assume, oh, DRM doesn't work because the people who do DRM engineering for these big companies, they're all idiots, right? After all, they get outsmarted by 15-year-olds. But the fact is that DRM doesn't work because of a, 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 a subtle technical point that is lost on almost everyone who thinks about it. And, that's because, and that point is that if you want to make a DRM system that will successfully stop the user of a device from copying a file, you need to design a device that stops, that, that will refuse orders from its user, that can hide a secret from its user, the secret key necessary to make the copying. You have to design a general purpose computing device that only runs programs when they don't upset someone else. And the thing is, to make DRM work, you have to make sure not just that the dumbest person who buys a device can't break it, but that the smartest person in the world can't break it. Because once it's broken for that person, it's broken for everyone. Because either the crack that they make up appears on the internet where anyone can download it, or, and all you have to do to break it is to, uh, is to download that crack, or the file itself is uploaded without any DRM. And then all you need to do in order to be an elite hacker who can break the DRM off the fiendishly clever DVD or digital download is type Shark Knight BitTorrent into Google. Real security experts and real cryptographers think DRM is an impossibility. You can't design a security system that never leaks, that can't be patched, and that attempts to hide its secrets in equipment belonging to adversaries who have infinite capital, expertise, and technology, and whose very nature makes it break once, break everywhere. Now, entertainment companies may have been convinced that there's hope for DRM, but they're wrong. And when they're fooled into endorsing laws like Bill C-32, they're stabbing themselves in the back by creating a marketplace in which DRM vendors hold all the cards and where the only way to get a fully functional, pristine copy of their product is to steal it. Because when you buy it, you get a crippled computer that tries to control its owner. I have a grandiose name for this principle. I call it Doctoro's First Law. Anytime someone puts a lock on something that belongs to you and doesn't give you the key, that lock isn't there for your benefit. So you'll notice I said Doctoro's First Law, and if you're attentive, you'll assume that this implies that there are some other laws, and there are. Uh, my literary agent used to be Arthur C. Clarke's literary agent. When I told him I had a law, he said, you need three. <laughs> so I have three. There's two more laws and the rest of this talk will be about them. So here's my second law. Fame doesn't guarantee fortune, but no one ever got rich from being unknown. So this is an important corollary to this DRM doesn't work stuff, because after all, the internet is a copying machine, and computers are copying machines. Uh, as, as Bruce Schneier says, 
A bit that can't be copied is like water from, that isn't wet. After all, we, when we talk about reading and writing bits, we don't actually mean that we read the bit. We mean that we copy the bit. The only way to read a bit off a disk is to copy it into memory. The only way to read what's in memory is to copy it into a frame buffer. The only way to read what's in a frame buffer is to copy it to a monitor. Um, which means that if people love your stuff, they'll copy it. So Tim O'Reilly's a very smart guy. He's the guy who founded O'Reilly and Associates, which is now the uh, largest tech book publisher in the world. He coined the term Web 2.0, for which we forgive him. Uh, and um, he said many famous uh, things. Uh, my favorite koan of his is, um, for most artists, the problem isn't piracy, it's obscurity. And I think Tim's right in, 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 in as far as that goes. But when people hear Tim say this, they often think that what he's saying is, if you're famous, you'll be rich. And of course, that's not true. Uh, there are lots of people there, out there who've been made famous without being rich. The entertainment industry is full of people who can explain to you in exquisite detail how their movie or game or book or song was widely copied without them ever seeing a dime from any of that exposure. After all, fame is nice, but you can't eat it. You can't use it to pay, for your kid, to pay your kids' dentistry bills, and you can't exchange it for a ride on the subway to the ATO. There are plenty of people for whom fame has not worked. But there is one important thing to note about fame. Everyone who's attained commercial success in the creative fields had it. That is to say, it's a contradiction to be both unknown and commercially successful. Creative fame might not make you rich, but you can't get rich without it. Or to put it another way, if the people who love your stuff don't know that it exists, they can't pay you for it. They still might not pay you for it once they know it exists, but before they can pay you for it, they must know that it's out there. Now, there are lots of ways that people have turned fame into money, and you know, if you'd like in the Q&A, we can talk about it in more detail. Uh, you know, a, a short list of it is uh, you can sell stuff, uh, you can ask for donations, you can perform, you can wrap your works in advertisements, you can license them to other people who have good ideas about how to make money, or you can take commissions off the back of your fame. But you can't do any of that stuff unless you have an audience. Lucky for us, we've got the internet, which in addition to being a copying machine, is an audience machine because it's never been easier to put a work in the hands of someone who wants that work. It's never been easier to get distribution. Getting paid is still hard, but it's always been hard. But look at the video game world. A few years ago, you had to sink a fortune into making cartridges and then get them into one or two or three big box stores. Now we can deliver games to browsers, consoles, tablets, and phones, and we can do that using anything from a DIY shopping cart on your own website with a homebrew PayPal-based uh, payment system, or you can put it in a big slick system like Steam. Or compare the, the narrow theatrical exhibition windows that we used to have, where you could only release into a one or two or three chains of theaters, three national broadcasters, or half a dozen major DVD re retailers, to all the ways that we now have to get video. Figuring out how to get people to care about your stuff enough to download it is still a hard problem, and it's always been a hard problem, and it probably always will be a hard problem, although things like Blogger and Twitter make it a little easier, and so does easy, low-cost copying. Copying solves one part of this problem, the getting your works to audience who's care, who care about it problem. So you can stick your video on YouTube, you can stick it on Vimeo, you can put it on archive.org. You can put your ebook in the Kindle store or Smashwords, or you can put a donate button on your website. Games, photos, 3D meshes, there's more easy to search, easy to enter distribution channels than there have ever been before. 
which means that there are more creators like you and me who can get our works into the hands of more people who want them and might pay for them. But this is only possible because intermediaries, that's organizations like YouTube, Vimeo, Amazon, the Internet Archive, Blogger, WordPress, Thingiverse, Rackspace, or the mom-and-pop ISP on your corner, are not required to act as cops and track down all the bad content on their servers and inspect it and make sure it's not bad before it goes live. It's inconceivable that intermediaries could possibly do this. Imagine if YouTube had to get a lawyer's opinion on every video that gets uploaded to them, 50 or 60 hours worth of video every single minute. There aren't enough lawyer hours remaining between now and the heat death of the universe to accomplish this task. But all over the world, entertainment companies and their pals in government are trying to pass laws that make intermediaries more responsible for what their users do. They're saying that countries should follow Syria and China and build national firewalls and then use them to block sites that are, quote, used by pirates. They're saying, um, they're saying sites used by pirates should have the duty to police their servers and kill anything that infringes copyright. But sites used by pirates is just another way of saying sites used by everyone. Because there isn't a single file indexed on the pirate bay that isn't indexed on Google and Bing. You might be an indie auteur movie maker in a garage, and you might be able to make an awesome movie, but it doesn't necessarily follow that you have the technical chops to build a video hosting site to distribute it, or that you could run it as efficiently and cheaply as YouTube. The big Venn diagram of everybody who's got a great idea for a video game and everyone who can build a back-end service like Amazon S3 to run the video game on has a very, very small intersection. We need intermediaries who can provide the plumbing through which our works flow, because without them, we're going to have to bear the cost of production and the cost of distribution, and most of us simply can't do that. So we need file lockers like you send it and mega upload and mega big file and mail big file and every day there seems to be more of them because they become essential to the production chain of almost every creative work. Sending files used to be a chore and now it's trivial and there's no such thing as a substantial creative endeavor these days that doesn't involve exchanging a lot of files between people. And all of these services are now under attack. Laws like the, like the proposed US Protect IP Act the UK Digital Economy Act, and international agreements that Canada's been a party to, like the Anti-Counterfeiting Trade Agreement, and uh, now the Trans-Pacific Par uh, Partnership, all throw more liability at intermediaries, especially file locker services. Now, ironically, the thing that negotiators and the entertainment industry who give them their marching orders are most concerned about when it comes to file lockers is the thing that people who actually make creative works need which is that they have privacy flags, that you can't see what's in them unless you're on the list of people who are allowed to look at it. And they argue that this makes it hard to figure out if a file locker is hosting something that infringes on copyright. But that, of course, is why we use them. No one wants to upload the gold master of a file, or worse yet, something that's in progress and not ready for public consumption, where everyone in the world can download it. You, just, you want to put it where only a small select group of people can see it, the people who are working on it with you. Now this is just going to get worse because there are cloud services like Amazon S3 and, and, Amazon, um, and uh, all the other big cloud storage services like Rackspace and so on that have uh, not a specific computer where a specific person's files live, but rather these on-call virtual machines that are spread out across lots and lots of computers that are themselves just blades, that is uh, a little card stuck in a rack. 
And as soon as one of those computers, those virtual computers, gets a copyright complaint, or, or worse yet, as soon as the police batter down the door in response to some criminal copyright complaint, you end up with entire racks of servers being seized. Um, in fact, the, the, the best informed guess that anyone I've heard uh, make about why it is WikiLeaks got took down from Amazon is that someone from Joe Lieberman's office gave them a call and said, nice cloud you've got here, it'd be a shame if something happened to it. Because if we have to figure out which of those bits on all of those computers might be violating our National Secrets Act, we're gonna have to take them all with us down for some forensic investigation. This gives intermediaries two choices. Put every customer in the rack at risk of random law enforcement blackouts or refuse to host anything unless it pays enough to hire a lawyer to make sure it won't get them into trouble. And if they have to hire a lawyer, then the creators whose works they're hosting will have to pay for the lawyer. We've got intermediary law totally, absolutely backwards. With DRM, we give intermediaries new rights that they don't need or deserve the right to tell a creator's audience what they can do with the creator's works, even if the creator disagrees. With intermediary liability, we take away the right to host creative works from all comers, raising the bar for getting your work into the hands of an audience. Seriously, you could not do a worse job of designing a copyright system to benefit creators if you tried. So that's law number two, and now we get to law number three, which is the conclusion, Doctorow's third law. Information doesn't want to be free, people do. I swear every time someone says information wants to be free, uh, the Internet Engineering Task Force kills a kitten. <laughs> I'm sure you've heard this statement. Stuart Brand said it in 1984 at the Hackers Conference to Steve Wozniak. It's one of our most enticing technology koans, but it's time to stop saying it. Because no one who fights for fair and reasonable information policy is doing so because information wants to be free. We fight because we want to be free. We don't want to be free to pirate creative works. We want to be free to own devices that don't let remote authorities set policy against our will and against our interests. We want to be free to use networks that don't spy on us in case we're infringing copyright. We want to be free to communicate in private without having to worry that our personal lives will be made public in the name of protecting creators' interests. Tech DRM doesn't work, and every time we try to make it work, we end up inventing spyware. So the most infamous example of this is uh, when Sony BMG, the music label, the giant conglomerate, lost uh, its senses and shipped six million CDs deliberately infected with a kind of malicious software called a rootkit. And what a rootkit does is it patches your computer's operating system so that it can't see certain processes and it can't see certain files. And that allows those processes and files to run even if you don't want them there. Now, the reason they put them there is because they wanted to run a process that checked to see whether or not you were copying their music. And if they detected it, uh, they were gonna shut it down. But in so doing, they punched an enormous hole in the, operating, in the uh, immune system of your operating system. And they infected more than half a million systems around the world with these, with these uh, rootkits, including some estimated 250,000 US military and government systems. And almost immediately, virus writers started cranking out malicious software that used the rootkit that they'd shipped to stop you copying music to hide the malicious software's activity. Uh, and, you know, um, games companies keep replicating this lunacy. So there's an otherwise perfectly decent device called the 3DS. It's a Nintendo handheld device. Actually, I say otherwise perfectly nice, but it is a 3D device, which means that people like me who are astigmatic get headaches from it. But apart from that, it's perfectly nice. 
but there's, it has one enormous flaw, which is in the way that it tries to stop you from infringing uh, copyright by running pirate games and also muscling in on their exclusive right to, uh, to load games on your device, to authorize companies to load games on your device, which is that every time you connect, you're near a network, it connects to it even if you tell it not to. And every time it connects to a network, it checks to see if there's a new operating system update for it, even if you tell it not to. And every time it finds a new operating system update, it installs it, even if you tell it not to. And if when that new operating system update comes in, it discovers that you've jailbroken it so that you can run games that haven't been blessed by Nintendo, it renders the device inoperable. In the parlance of the industry, it bricks it, which is to say it is as useful as a brick. Now on PCs, there's a company called Ubisoft that's infamous for doing this with video games. Uh, and their essential position is that while you're playing a video game that Ubisoft has made, your computer stops being yours and starts being theirs. And they should have the right to inspect all the processes that you're running, all the files that are on your drive, and everything that you're doing on the network, and to disconnect you, uh, uh, and to shut down your game if you disconnect from the network or try to interfere with the spyware. Now, these are the most egregious offenders, but they're hardly the only, only ones. Everyone from Hulu to Amazon to iBooks are trying to figure out ways to take over your computer and they're demanding that OS vendors and hardware companies build in the hooks that allow processes to run without your permission, even if you don't want them there. So, uh, so I'm a science fiction novelist, and that means that I have a very fraught relationship with science fiction movies, not least because the people who write them uh, tend to come up with really dumb plots and they get paid a lot more than I do. And if there's one thing that I really dislike about science fiction movies, it's the recurring theme of the self-destructing rocket ship. And you've undoubtedly seen this. Um, every now and again, there'll be some foo on the bridge of a rocket ship, uh, some kind of fighting, uh, some kind of shaking, and someone's elbow hits the wrong button. And then this plummy voice that sounds to my ear eerily like Margaret Thatcher after she got accent training starts counting down from 10. Self-destruct sequence initiated, 10, 9, 8. And you know, whenever I see that, I think, I'm not an aerospace engineer, and I don't pretend to be one, but I think that would be a better rocket ship if it wasn't designed to explode. <laughs> now, I'm not a hardware engineer, and I don't pretend to be one, but I think our devices would be better if they weren't designed from the ground up to let scumbags and creeps and spooks and governments spy on us and control what we do. And on the intermediary side, you've got an even more bizarre spectacle. You've got entertainment giants like Viacom suing Google over YouTube. Now, Viacom had a lot of crazy claims about YouTube, but the craziest one of all, the one that just put the icing on the crazy cake for me, was um, their claim that YouTube abetted infringement by allowing you to mark your videos as private. So I mark videos as private. I mark videos of my three-year-old in the bathtub as private. And then I send, I put my parents on the distribution list because we live thousands of miles away, and it'd be nice to show them videos of my daughter in the bathtub, and I don't think that everyone else needs to see that. So. Viacom says that when I use that privacy flag, I'm using a service that allows people to hide copyright infringement from enforcement wear, from things that crawl around on YouTube to find things that infringe on Viacom's copyright. And it's probably true that there's a bad guy out there who's done that with, with pirated material. But the question for me is why should my capacity to conduct my personal life in private be subordinated to Viacom's business model? Now it gets worse. In the UK, in France, and in New Zealand, they've passed internet disconnection laws that, yes, require ISPs to disconnect your internet connection and the internet connection of everyone you share it with if your IP address is named in a series of unsubstantiated copyright claims. 
Now, the UN, uh, the UN calls internet access a human right, and it's not hard to see why. Um, excuse me. Sorry, it's been a long day. So um, my, my wife is in the audience here. I'm about to embarrass because she's English and they embarrass easily. Uh, my wife used to work for a, a, a British public broadcaster called Channel 4, and she was in the public service side of it. And she worked with some research from government that looked at what happened when families that were in the poorest, most vulnerable parts of British society, the people living in post-industrial towns in the north and public housing, got internet access. And the things that internet access improved for those people were remarkable. It wasn't just that they had you know, better access to recipes or that they could exchange dirty emails. Uh, they had better nutrition. They had more pocket money at the end of the month because when you've got no disposable income and you can pay some of your bills on the internet and save eight or 10 pounds a month, that's eight or 10 pounds that's, that you can actually put in the bank or put towards something useful. Their kids had better educational outcomes and were more likely to go into tertiary education. They had more class mobility. In every outcome you can imagine, the internet improved their lives. Um, and if we're... Um, we're talking about taking away this. We're talking away, about taking away the single wire that delivers civic engagement, freedom of access, freedom of assembly, and freedom of speech. And we're not talking about doing it merely to people who've been convicted of a civic offense, infringing copyright, but people who happen to live with people who happen to have been accused of violating a civil statute. Now, I don't think science fiction writers are very good at predicting the future. You know, there's this, this, this old saw that when a, an old scientist tells you something is, uh, is possible, they're probably right. When they tell you it's impossible, they're probably wrong. I think in general, when a science fiction writer tells you something is coming, they're almost always wrong and almost telling you something about what they fear or, or aspire to. But there are a couple of predictions that I'm willing to make with relative confidence. The first is that bits are never going to get harder to copy than they are today. Your descendants in a generation or two will marvel at how hard it was to copy things in 2011. They will gasp at how small and uncapacious and slow your hard drives were, how pokey the network was, and how few people there were who knew how to type Shark Knight BitTorrent into Google. <laughs> My second prediction is this. Everything you do in the physical world today involves some online component and tomorrow will require some online component. You and me and all our kids are increasingly inhabiting a world in which there's no such thing as copyright policy, there's only internet policy. And there's no such thing as internet policy, there's just policy that touches on every area of our lives. And copyright scope is let's make a well-functioning market for creative works, not Let's govern every corner of human experience. Technology this, this year allowed revolutionaries in the Middle East to figure out how to, how to uh, coordinate and challenge despotic rulers, and technology allowed the secret police in those countries to figure out who to round up, torture, and murder. If copyright's furtherance requires tilting the balance of technology to make the citizen's job harder and the secret policeman's job easier, then we're doing copyright wrong. I'm a novelist. I pay my mortgage with copyright. I support my family with copyright. And I believe, I really, really believe that we can make copyright law that will pay artists without requiring absurdities like copy-proof copy bits or building a surveillance state into the fabric of the information society. We've done this before at earlier eras in copyright. We've made copyrights that looked at the characteristics of technology around us and the reality on the ground 
and that tweaked things to give copyright creators the advantage. For example, in the first uh, years of the American copyright, you had a system where authors got a 14-year copyright that could be renewed once only by the author. Now, that had a really interesting uh, effect on the leverage of authors. Because when you're an author whose book hasn't sold any copies, you have very little leverage. If you're a new author and you go to a publisher and you say, I'd like you to publish my book, but that publisher controls some important part of the distribution system, they have the whip hand and they can say something like, of course we'll publish your book and we'll give you a raisin. Now, 14 years later, when the copyright's about to expire and the book is a bestseller and the publisher comes back to you and says, please, Mr. Author, will you renew this copyright? You might say, yes, of course I will, but I'll want your kidney and your firstborn. We need to look for solutions that ensure that creators and that investors get amply compensated and that we balance the relationship between them and intermediaries. Uh, and I think we can find them. But I'll tell you what, if we can't find them, if the only way to keep science fiction writing or any other creative field alive is to redesign the devices that fill our pockets, that run our cars, that carry our love notes, that comprise our entire system of political and civic engagement, and that will very soon be making appearances under your skin, is to redesign them so that they spy on us and betray us, then I'm going to go get a real job. Because I want to be free more than I want to be a writer. I want my daughter to be free. I want my country to be free. And I want our future to be free. So if you agree, I think that there's things that you can do. You can take this back to your jobs and to your politicians. You can join organizations like the Electronic Frontier Foundation. You can weigh in with your MP on Bill C-32. They may not be holding consultations, but that doesn't mean that they won't hear from us. Uh, you can get mouthy with your boss and with investors and companies that you're involved with. We can secure li livelihoods for creative people, and we can preserve technology's power to liberate. Let's keep the creative industries where they belong on the side of free speech, free assembly, and freedom of conscience. Thank you. So we have some time now for questions. Uh, and there's a roving mic. There's a roving mic. Look at that. There's two roving mics. So if you put your hand up, and uh, a handy tip, long rambling remarks, if you end them on, an, on a kind of rising inflection and say, what do you think of that, become questions. Um, <laughs> or, was, that, was that encouraging? No, no, it's just a tip. It's just one that I wish more people understood. <laughs> just putting it out there. All right, uh, why don't All right, we start moving the mic? Two mics. Jillian's got one on this side. I've got All one right. on this side. We're podcasting this, so we really like you to speak into the mic. So Great. Here. I've got somebody here with a question. Thank you very much. Welcome, Corey. I really appreciate every word I heard. Thank you. Um, I'm thinking of Charlie Strauss and the, the Accelerando Glasses Hulking State. You know, thinking of virtualizing our minds and what it would mean if we didn't own the rights to that. Pay royalties in the operating system, or would cease to exist. Um, do you do you see any leverage in actually using that kind of uh, extrapolative thinking in for, forming arguments to catch the public imagination about what it means to own the, the rights to your own creativity? It's an interesting question. I I, I mean, I, Charlie writes great books. We're in fact finishing a book that I owe him an installment on right now. Um, and, and I think that, that Accelerando is really uh, a great example of that. Carl Schrader, who lives here in Toronto, has also written about this in, um, 
uh, Ventus. He writes about he writes similar kinds of things. What I think science fiction can do at its best is give us a narrative to make real some of the very abstract concerns that we have about how technology affects our lives. So imagine it's 1947, the year before George Orwell wrote 1984, and you want to explain to someone why surveillance changes your behavior and you object to it. You're left with a pretty bloodless kind of abstract argument. You know, when someone's looking over my shoulder, I feel different. And it's, it doesn't have a lot of emotional oomph, right? So Orwell writes 1984, and here we are 50, 60 years later, and we actually have a word, Orwellian, that we can drop into the discussion. I don't like it when there's a camera looking at me all the time because it's Orwellian. And you get to import the entire narrative of, of, uh, that, that, is, that takes place in that novel, that, that kind of that really um, emblematic narrative of how people's behavior changes in the face of surveillance. And, and that's what I think science fiction can do at its best, and where it's best as a tool for social change is in, is in moving abstract arguments into a more concrete, sort of bloody, visceral level. Sorry, you, you mentioned it earlier, but to stop Bill C-32 in Canada, even though they're not holding public consultations, um, you just go to our MPs or what else would you suggest for well, stopping? Is, is Online Rights Canada kicking off again? I, I'm looking at one of its coordinators back there, Ren. I'll repeat this. So Ren, Ren Buchholz back there, he used to be my colleague at EFF, recommends CIPIC, C-I-P-P-I-C.ca. Right, which is a, thanks for it, good to see you. Um, <laughs> it's, a, it's a legal clinic at the University of Ottawa's law school that uh, uh, specializes on technology and civil liberties issues, and uh, they coordinate all of great portion of Canada's kind of uh, grassroots response to that, to, to that bill and those kinds of bills. And so I'm not sure what they've got going right now about, uh, about the upcoming bill, but that would be the place to check. I think it's really going to depend on how heavily whipped the Tories are, because, you know, if you're like a, a rip-snorting, Ayn Rand-worshipping, Theodore Hayek-loving, uh, free property kind of guy, it's a little crazy to say, I own this device, and I'm not doing anything illegal with it, and some other person out there gets to tell me what I can do with it, even though it's my private property. Uh, and I think that there's, you know, I think that, that there's a lot of room inside the Tory party to square this ideologically, to square opposition to C32 ideologically with some of their core beliefs. And, and all I think we can hope for is either that this will be delayed until, once again, Parliament dissolves in acrimony, as it seems to do every 15 minutes, or uh, that um, the whip can't overcome the constituents' uh, uh, pleas to their MPs. And, and that's all you can ever hope for in a majority government that's, that's got it into its head to, to pass a bill. I appreciated your early remarks about the uh, anti-competitive aspects of mm -hmm. iTunes, and I've come to similar conclusions um, a few years ago, and yet the course of an anti-competitive nature continues, the Apple steamroller of marketing continues. Do you have any thoughts on why it is that most consumers don't seem to understand what the risks are with this? Well, I think it's because of the DMCA. I mean, I think that there's probably about uh, 100,000 smart people uh, in Silicon Valley around uh, MIT and in other tech parks around the world uh, who would love to put together a PowerPoint deck explaining exactly how they're going to show people 
how to break the iOS ecosystem and open it up and allow third parties to participate in it without Apple's blessing. And the only thing stopping them is the fact that they would be sued into a smoking crater if they, if they took their PowerPoint deck out to a VC's office and tried to raise money for it. I mean, I'm, I'm not a rip-snorting Theodore Hayek, Ayn Rand type, but I do think markets do some stuff. And I think that if it's possible to make an enormous assload of money doing something, people do it. And I think that it would be possible to make an enormous assload of money breaking the iTunes monopoly up if it wasn't for DMCA. Uh, and, you know, it remains to be seen whether or not the U.S. can find its way out of DMCA. What they keep trying to do is embed it in these, in these international trade agreements, like the Trans-Pacific Partnership, so it suddenly becomes a trade obligation, right? It's not, it's not something that is just a matter of local law, but if you get rid of it, you, you nuke the U.S.-Korea Free Trade Pact or the CAFTA, the Central American Free Trade Agreement, or the... Uh, the the bilateral agreements with the Andean nations or whatever. And it just, it, it, it becomes more and more stitched into the fabric of their law and harder and harder to get rid of. But I, I think that's it. I mean, I think it's, it's just pure, simple market distortion. Uh, first to say, excellent talk. Thank, Thank you very you. much. Um, you made me think of uh, an article I read yesterday in The Guardian. Uh, mm -hmm. The title was, Google faces pressure to block file sharing sites. And today in the UK, Google met with uh, Ed Daisy. the government, uh, ah, Jeremy Hunt. Obviously, uh, <laughs> he said he wants to make life more difficult yeah. for sites that infringe copyright. And his quote was, we intend to take measures to make it more and more difficult to access sites that deliberately facilitate infringement, misleading consumers, and depriving creators of a fair reward for their creativity. What do you think of that? Yeah, I mean, so I think that the pro uh, that same article actually has a quote later on from my colleague Jim Killick, who, who's the executive director of, of the Open Rights Group, and he said it very well, which is, um, it's, all, it's all cost, no benefit. So, you know, pirates are not, in fact, stopped by this stuff. Anyone who thinks that, that national firewalls work needs to go to China, where they have uh, the world's majority of engineers. Uh, they make all the network switching equipment in the world. They have the um, legal authority to take anyone who flouts Chinese law and harvest their organs for party members, and they can't build a firewall that works, right? So why, why Ed Vasey or, or any of the other um, uh, you know, ministers in, in uh, the current coalition government in the UK thinks that they can do it is absolutely beyond me. So what's going to happen is that pirates will do exactly the same thing that Chinese dissidents do or that Saudis who want to look at porn or that everyone else who circumvents a firewall does, which is they'll circumvent the firewall. And in the meantime, we're going to end up with these giant secret blacklists of websites that are blocked by the great firewall of Britain that are fed into by industry. They're not subject to any kind of accountability because they never are because uh, they say, well, if you provide a list of all the websites we block, it's a roadmap to piracy. And I always say, well, aren't you blocking them? I thought blocking them worked, right? So why should it matter if we know what they are? Because you're blocking them, right? No, no, we've got to block them and tell you, not tell you what we're blocking. Um, and uh, so you end up with this, with a, with, you know, sort of uh, making it harder to use the British internet. You make the inter British internet worse. You make it easy for censors and creeps to shovel stuff that they don't like into the copyright infringement box and, uh, and have it blocked nationally. And you won't stop piracy. I mean, mission accomplished, guys. Um, I, uh, I saw a story online the other day that, that said that David Prowse, who was uh, Vader in Jedi, uh, has yet to get any residuals from Lucasfilm mm. because apparently the film has not yet been profitable. Uh, so the way this works is that Lucasfilm has a subsidiary company that is the studio that makes 
the movie, uh, and then Lucasfilm charges them an exorbitant amount of money. For the license, that accounts for it, that it is exactly the profit. Sure. Yeah. So, um, and that's, I mean, that's before the DMCA, that's a case related to uh, contract law. And so I'm wondering if there's even maybe a deeper thread of this sense that in law that corporations can be treated as individuals, as people, as citizens, that's maybe at the root of that. I don't think it's the individual, I mean, I think there's lots of things wrong with corporate personhood. I don't think that has anything to do with corporate personhood. I think that just, ha that has more to do with bottlenecks and distribution channels because it's not like actors who've got agents go in going, a piece of the gross, man, that's going to be worth a lot. Everyone knows a piece of the gross is another way of saying screw you, right? So why, why did they accept a piece of the gross? Because there's only so many places you can get a high-paid acting gig. And why are there only so many places you can get a high-paid acting gig? Because there were naturally occurring bottlenecks and some unnaturally occurring bottlenecks. There was, uh, uh, oh, through the history of the film uh, industry, there have been a series of fairly high-profile antitrust suits. But there are some naturally occurring bottlenecks in film distribution, like the number of theaters and the cost of striking new prints and you know, the number of skill projectionists and all that stuff. So the those people had the negotiating whip hand. I mean, it's a little, if you want to see a, a contemporary example in music, um, the standard record deal looks like this. Uh, every time, if I'm the musician and you're the label, every time you sell a, a record, I get 7%. Every time you license the music on it, I get 50%. So is iTunes a sale or a license? Well, it's got a 28,000 word license agreement, so I think we can call it a license. And the record labels certainly call it a license agreement whenever anyone says, uh, you know, hey, I bought this, I should have the right to sell it on. They go, you didn't buy it, you just licensed it. So how much of the 99 cents should you get if it's a licensed uh, deal instead of a sale? Well, 50%, 48.5 cents. How much do you get? 7%. It's counted as a sale. Why is it counted as a sale and not a license when it's so clearly licensed? Because screw you, that's why, right? Because there's four record labels, right? That's why. And if you don't like it, go start your own record label. Right? And now some people are doing that, and the reason they're able to do that is because there's a lot of new opportunities to avoid the bottlenecks that the record labels control, like radio play, like retail outlets, and so on. Um, again, I don't have a copy of The Fountainhead under my pillow, but I still think markets solve some problems, and, and certainly fewer distribution channels always end up with a, with a worse deal for the people trying to enter those distribution channels, and a better deal for the people running the distribution channels. Hi there. Hi. Um, I wanted to thank you for this talk. Thanks. Um, I'm from Centennial College. We're in the Book and Bag program. And we actually, you came up in conversation when we were in our censorship class and oh. in our copyright class and copyright space permissions. So we came to this, and a lot of the rhetoric around copyright and around um, these locks is that it protects creators. And you illustrated that it doesn't, but what is, what words can be used to make sure that groups that are representing creators aren't also perpetuating this idea that these locks protect our work mm. and these locks will make sure that we get paid because we make our living off of this and so people won't be, you know, copying it without us and et cetera, et cetera. Well, you know, I think every policy debate hinges on both evidence and emotion, right? And, and they have to be in the right balance. And mostly we get a lot of emotion in this debate and very little evidence. So, the, you know, the, we've had many years of, of DRM laws, right? It started in 1998. And we've had longer than that of DRM before it was protected in law. 
and there's not any evidence that it's making money for creators. And so um, I think that, that you, can, you can cite that evidence as, as, as a pretty good case against it. It's harder to capture the emotional argument. I try to do that too when I talk about what it means to lose the, the whip hand of copyright to a, a mere intermediary. But um, you know, it's, 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 it's a little of both. In terms of designing copyright systems that actually work with the reality of, of, of technology, I mean, copyright's always changing when technology changes because copyright regulates copying. We copy with technology. When new technology comes along, we need new copyright laws. So, you know, the history of copyright laws, the history of lawsuits over devices. You know, the, the first copyright law in the U.S. For, for anything other than books and maps was for recorded music, or, and sheet music, rather, was for recorded music, and that was because the sheet music people didn't like that the record player people were recording music. And so we got a copyright law that started with the sheet music people saying, those guys are pirates and you shouldn't let them record our music. And the American government said, actually, they can record any song they want, provided they pay two cents every time they release a recording to the composer. And then along came radio, which was going to start playing the records. And the people who were ripping off the composers and needed a new law to make it legal, they said, when we did it, that was progress. But what those guys are doing with, with their radio, that's, that's totally theft. And then the cable operators came along, and they took the broadcasts, and they put them over cable. And the broadcaster said, well, when we were taking those records and playing them on the radio, that was progress. What these guys are doing with cable, totally theft. And then the cable operators that took the broadcasts, they sued the people who made VCRs, because when, when they took the broadcasts and put them over the cable, well, that was progress. But as soon as you start recording them in your living room, well, that's theft. And of course, the people who made VCRs, Sony, became record labels and TV, TV studios and movie studios and sued basically the internet because when they did it with the Betamax, that was progress and when everyone else did it to them, that was theft. So we, we need new copyright laws that take account of it and there's lots of different things that have been tried at different times and some of them have worked better than others. I mean, I think with music, we have pretty good solutions for what you do when you can't control copying of music and yet people really want to use it. So um, anytime you go into a live venue or anytime you listen to music on the radio, um, there's not an individual license transaction taking place for every song, right? If you go into a karaoke bar and you're like, I really want to sing my way, they don't track down Paul Anka's descendants and ring them up at two in the morning and say, there's someone here from Centennial College who wants to sing my way. Is that 10 cents or 25 cents, right? They pay a blanket license. That blanket license is collected by a collecting society. It tries to figure out who's, who's playing, paying, playing what, who's listening to what, who's performing what, and pay them out. Now, by and large, those collecting societies have been pretty, pretty dirty. They, they, they don't do great accounting. They're not very accountable to their members. But that's an implementation issue. It's not, a, it's not fundamental to it. Here in the 21st century, if there's one thing we do really well, it's measure the use of data. And mostly we do it in really creepy ways to sell people stuff. It'd be really interesting to measure the use of music, allowing ISPs, for example, to opt in. So what if Rogers could say to the performing rights organizations in this country, we would like to offer to our customers a $5 a month, download all the music on the internet, no matter where it is and in any format, using any tool you can find, program. We'll give the five bucks to you. You use some kind of transparent 21st century auditing techniques to figure out what's being downloaded, and you give the money to the artists. Well, that would make it legal for people to do what they're already doing and what shows no sign of stopping. It would enable artists to actually get paid instead of being vilified for destroying people's lives. 
Um, and it would, in fact, break the deadlock, right? It wouldn't, it, wouldn't, it wouldn't make us build more censorship and more bad stuff into our system. And the best part of it is, it's the system we already use everywhere else we can't control music, like in live venues and on radio and, on, and in elevators and in malls and everywhere else that people play music. Can we take two more questions? I think I might be a random question because I'm still trying to figure it out on my own. Okay. So specifically with devices, uh, we talked a lot about the different types of devices and, and just technology in general. Um, what's stopping me from saying, oh, I like your shoes, how about I come and take your shoes? Or you probably have a comfortable bed, what is it that prevents me from sleeping in your bed tonight? Like, like what measure is the most important one? What, yeah, what, I think it's a social contract. I think it's mostly a social contract. I mean, uh, anyone who spends 15 minutes with the internet can figure out how to pick pretty much any lock that exists, right? The reason my neighbors haven't killed me in my sleep is not because my door is locked. It's because we have a social contract and people are mostly good and we all agree more or less that that's the right thing to do. I don't think copying falls into that category. I actually think copying music is what people do when they love music. I, I mean, Lily Allen, do you remember she had this incredible tantrum about people copying her music? And of course, all these people gleefully went and looked at her website and found that she'd been uploading other people's music and making mixtapes and putting them on. People were like, oh, Lily Allen's such a hypocrite. And Lily Allen's, well, maybe she's a hypocrite. I think what she is is she's naive because she is doing what everyone who loves music do, which is sharing music. I mean, if it wasn't for mixtapes, my entire adolescence would have been celibate. Right. So Apple actually did remove the DRM from iTunes Music. Yeah. Those are now free. Yeah. And the reason why there's still DRM on the audiobooks is not because Apple doesn't want the DRM, it's because of... Oh, if only that were true. Uh, but I've been in the negotiation between Bertelsmann, the largest publisher in the world by far, asking Apple to remove the DRM from its audiobooks. They would do it for music. If they they, the reason they did it for music, I, I, the reason they did it for music, Amazon MP3 because the labels all went and gave their MP3s to Amazon without DRM, and Apple went, oh my god, we're totally hosed because people are gonna buy music, because no one wants DRM, right? No one woke up this morning and said, crap, you know what I need? A way to do less with my music, right? So there's like at, saying now with fewer features, there's no way to actually sell music. So the reason they were able, the reason that, that Apple did it is because there was a competitor. And there was a moment when, app, when that competitor could come into existence. The problem here is that Amazon owns Apple's DRM audiobook supplier, Audible. And so neither of these companies are in, in any position to take the DRM off because they both have sort of gotten together, put their arms around each other's shoulders, and said, let's you and me cooperate on screwing all of them. Sorry, just to bring it all back, because I, I understand it's double-edged sword where you have the freedom on the devices to be able to do whatever you want. Mm -hmm. So you can install whatever applications you want, but then I can make an application, you can install it, and then I can do whatever I want on your device. Versus having some type of control over what it is that you install on and having... So it... it no, again, I, I totally disagree. Just go back to the social... Yeah, no, no, I totally disagree. So what you're saying is because Apple inspects every app, they make sure that no bad apps end up on my device. Well, Apple does theoretically inspect every app, although the quality of their inspection is open to question and they've missed things that they shouldn't have missed and so on. But I'm not saying that um, you shouldn't have people who curate things that they think are worthy, trustworthy, and good. I'm saying that having a law that says there's only one company allowed... Like, you can print crazy things in books, right? I don't think that... Um, uh, uh, that 
people should sell child pornography in bookstores, for example. But because someone might sell child pornography in a bookstore, it doesn't mean that we should only have one bookstore that guarantees it won't carry child pornography, right? We can have lots of retailers and lots of distribution channels for this stuff that use lots of different mechanisms to verify the authenticity or the, the trustworthiness of an application. And so, you know, Google has solved this with Android. They have a device, and uh, out of the box, it only installs software from Google. And then there's a checkbox that says, I'm a grown-up, I trust other people, let me decide. And when you check the box, all the safety doesn't run out of that little checkbox, right, and pull up on the, feet around your uh, on, on the floor around your feet. If you make a bad decision about which marketplace to choose, it does. If you make a good decision, it doesn't. I don't think that Apple is the only company capable of making good decisions about which apps I should run on my device, even if they made the device. Just like I don't think, you know, you could install an aftermarket cigarette lighter car adapter for, your, for, for recharging your phone that makes the entire thing burst into flames. That isn't an argument to say that only Nissan should be allowed to make things that plug into your cigarette lighter. First of all, thank you very much. You're welcome, thank you. And um, you talked briefly about the future. Uh -huh. And I think preaching to the quiet here, we all pretty much agree that in the future, copying is obviously going to become a little easier. But right now, we're faced with um, copyright laws changing here and already changed in the UK and France and places. What's the best case scenario that you see in the future for these laws? Do they just become insanely obsolete, like, you know, fail to pay in the back of taxi, taxi cabs, or um, are we just become, going to become increasingly oppressed and squished by more and more laws? So there's a really good book I liked last year called What Technology Wants by Kevin Kelly, who's a very clever person and was the, the first managing editor at Wired. And he argues that there's a certain amount of inevitability to technology. He says that, you know, when you look at things like the automobile. It was invented simultaneously by like eight people around the world because the infrastructure to make automobiles was present. And as soon as it's present, there's lots of people who, for whom automobiles will naturally suggest themselves. When it's railroading time, you get railroads. And I quibbled with that because I think that there is one thing that can stop it for a long time in, the, in, in local places anyways, which is weird or bad or crazy rules and regulations. Uh, you know, Japan famously looked at guns and said, there's no honor in these things, throw them into the sea, right? And was a society that had no guns for a long time, even as the rest of the world was having guns. However you feel about guns, it's pretty clear that a technology that everyone else found useful, one country was able to essentially become totally Amish about and, and, and eschew. So um, I worry that if we don't do something, things could get very bad indeed. And I hope that if we do do something, that things could be better. And that's the state of mind, I think, that, that defines activism, right? You have to, on the one hand, really think that things could get bad. And I think that there is a kind of technologically savvy person for whom things will get bad is always easily answered by, well, not for me. I can always break it. I know how to get around it. I can, I can always get under it. I, I actually was just, just met this guy who's an ex-Israeli military hacker, and I was telling him this stuff, and he said, oh, this stuff is always cracked. I can always crack it. And it's like, yes, you can crack it, but you don't live alone. You live in a society. So uh, do you want um, your kids using devices that spy on them? Do you want to uh, uh, get in a subway whose control system was designed from the ground up to allow remote code to execute that the operator can't override. I mean, you exist embedded in this much larger world that's going to have problems. And so things can get bad. And, and even if you're technologically savvy, they can get bad for all of us. 
the other thing that, that hackers sometimes say, that geeks sometimes say, is, well, the entire legislative and lobbying process is just crap. Our superior technology will make their rules obsolete anyway. Uh, we don't have to do anything. And, you know, to them I say, there, it, history does sometimes, the pendulum of history does usually swing, but it can spend an awful long time on the upswing before it comes back. You know, we have things like dark ages uh, that last hundreds of years, and counting on the pendulum to rescue you due to the inevitability of history, uh, you might be in for a very, very, very long wait. So that's why I think I don't have a best case or a worst case. I have a position, and that position is it'll get worse if we don't do something, and it might get better if we do. And that's why I do stuff, and that's why I hope you will too. So thank you. Thank you for listening to this Art Guy of Ontario podcast. For additional recordings, as well as information on upcoming programming and events, please visit us online at ago.net slash talks.